Recently, the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy has had a rather radical increase in viewership. Or more properly, listenership. Mm. Which may well be due to the kind words of one Carl Eckler, who recommended us in an interview back in July that we've only just found out about now. So, this is perhaps the perfect time to engage in a little light advertising. The first is that if you enjoy this content, you will enjoy my other content, Conspiracism, a new YouTube series where I discuss conspiracy theories and conspiracy theory. Check out the links in the episode description, or just look up Conspiracism on the good old YouTubes. Mm. The second bit of advertising is of course our Patreon crowdfunding campaign, where you give us money and we buy things. At the moment we're buying podcast essential items like, like mics and lights, uh, but give us more and you'll help pay for our hosting, um, and potentially golden robes for the two of us. Plus scepters! Scepters are cool. They are. Details in the episode description, uh, or just search Patreon for, once again, The Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. Now you can multitask, you can search for them now, whilst also enjoying this fine episode where we review a book about the Flat Earth, update you on the news, and likely talk about pop culture. I mean, we haven't, haven't actually made a reference to Split Second in months, at least. So it's really time we changed that. It was the film about climate change before climate change was fashionable. Mm. And it was all due to Satan. Typical. Bloody typical. The Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. Hello! In what seems to have become a bit of a habit, you're listening to The Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. Um, here in Auckland, New Zealand, I, of course, uh, am Josh Addison, and again, in what seems to be becoming some sort of a habit, sitting directly next to me is Dr. M. Rx Dentith. Indeed, I am sitting, and mm. I am indeed next to you, and I am also becoming a bit of a habit with you, mm. Mm. as is my whiskey drinking, which is becoming a bit of an endeavour. Actually, I meant to say indulgement. Indul indulgence. That too. Yes. All three, an mm. endeavour, an indulgement. And an indulgence. Now, I don't know what an indulge mint is. I'm assuming it's some kind of really decadent mint. Mm. Oh, I really want a decadent mint, Joshua. Well, don't you want a decadent mint? Yeah, sometimes, yeah. I don't know. It's, what, 8.30 or something at night? I don't, I don't think it's particularly shameful to be drinking whiskey at this hour. Ah, but you don't know when I started. Well, yes. I mean, we recorded the last episode in the in the mid to late afternoon, and I think you were, you were restrained back then, weren't you? I was, mm. although that was also because that particular weekend had been a weekend of quite heavy drinking, and thus I didn't really want to have another drink on Sunday afternoon. Ah, well, there we go. So this week, um, as promised last week, we have a book review. Um, and what a book, what a book it is. It's quite the book. Last Box listed, it was sent to me, well, mm -hmm. actually sent to us, to our really used email address. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I saw it, I thought, we have got to review this book on the podcast. And not because we sometimes are desperate for content. This is genuinely quite an interesting book. Although we are desperate for content. We're always mm -hmm. desperate for mm -hmm. content. Although, that being said, we do manage to produce a wet... A episode a week, mm. an episode a week without fail. Pretty much, yes. I don't know. Maybe we're getting good at this. Maybe we're just lucky. Maybe it's Maybelline. Maybe it's Maybelline. Yeah, probably. Does that count as our first pop culture reference for the episode? It's a bit is it, weak. Is it, I think we can do better. Yeah, I, do I mean, I suppose it is a kind of pop culture reference because that maybe it's Maybelline meme slash joke kind of goes back to our childhood. Mm. But I do it's feel... It's a bit of a staple. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, let's, let's get into the episode proper and we'll see what we can work into it organically as we, as kind we of go. Massage mm. the scalp to 
get the essential oils out into the hair. Precisely, that's what we're going to do right now. Right, so I mean, last week we did we did sort of establish that I'm not the biggest fan of 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 what you might call reading. And I imagine of, after you read this, of books, you're still yes, not the I, I, fan I, of I what you might call reading. Consider myself vindicated by the experience because I read m most of this, some of this book, definitely, certainly bits of the book. I did tune out. It's only what forty one, something pages like long? that. Yes. Um, so the book, we should probably stop beating around the bush and t tell you what the book actually is. It's called Morningstar's Tale. It's by Lee Austin. Um, how, who is Lee Austin? Why did we come? How? What? Why? Why is this happening? Why did you do this to me? All right, let me give you Lee Austin's bio from Smashwords, which is a website which is about publications and authors. Lee Austin is an American broadcaster known for his alternative talk show, Outcast Radio which doesn't actually appear to be available online anymore. Pushing the existential envelope with topics including theology, metaphysics, and conspiracy theories, Lee's show Flourish is a late-night favourite for those in search of the truth. Born in Boston, Lee moved, not moved, moved to Los Angeles in his early 20s to pursue a career as a stand-up comedian. With the entertainment bug firmly planted, Lee found his calling in radio. For over 30 years, he's crisscrossed the country as a talk show host, disc jockey, copywriter, and program director for numerous radio stations. In 2017, that's last year, he wrote Morningstar's Tale, a sci-fi novella covering many of the topics discussed on Outcast Radio. Well, there you go. And then, yes, uh, what, a couple of weeks ago? About a week and a half ago, I received the following email. Good evening. The Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. There isn't a topic today more controversial, divisive, and ridiculed than the Flat Earth Theory. Well, that's true. According to an April 2018 Forbes magazine article, only two-thirds of American millennials believe the Earth is round. I've written a newly published book, Morningstar's Tale, the other third might find of interest. Any book copy is attached for your review. So it was sent unsolicited to the podcast for reviewing purposes. Was it sent by Mr. Austin? It was indeed. Well, now, one thing which will become clear is that we haven't made contact with Mr. Austin because many of the things we're going to discuss in this book review actually could be resolved by asking him a simple question. Do you believe anything that you've written? Mm. And yet, I have that a feeling... That kind of spoils it, I think. Yeah, and yeah. I have a feeling, given the way the book is written... The answer is not going to be decisive one way or the other because this book is what I would call a combination of the Dan Brown conditional and the Boethius gambit. Now, by these two things, I mean the Dan Brown conditional is at the beginning of almost every Robert Langdon book, there is a little presay or preface that says events and people and objects in this book described are accurate, blah, 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 blah. So famously, the Da Vinci Code makes the claim that every description of artwork within the book is in fact reflective of the actual artwork in the world. And then the very first page of the very first chapter contains numerous inaccuracies, which either shows that Brown doesn't do research or Brown is quite clever because everything's accurate. I'm going to disprove that in the first page to show you this is part of the fiction. Now, the Boethius option here is probably even more interesting. So Bo Boethius was a 
late Roman Republic, early Roman Empire, or early Roman Empire philosopher, who wrote a book called The Constellations of Philosophy. And in the introduction to The Constellations of Philosophy, Boethius writes that there are errors in the text he has deliberately introduced for the discerning reader to find. So Boethius has basically covered his bases. If you find something wrong in the Constellations of Philosophy, then you're able to say, oh, Boethius, you got this wrong. And he can go, yeah, you're quite clever. You spotted that mistake I put into the book deliberately. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink, say no more. Morningstar's tale is a tale of Lucifer telling us the images of God about what's really out there, whilst admitting that he is the father of lies, mm. but sometimes he tells the truth. Or does he? Yes. Or does he? Sometimes. Or does he? Never. Or does he? On all occasions. So his, I, I, I have trouble wrapping my head around the entire thing, to be honest. But it's basically Lucifer is saying, I've spent the last few centuries spreading this, the, these nonsense propositions that have been picked up and reinforced by all of, all of uh, humanity's institutions. And now I'm telling you what the truth really is. But of or course, because I? you're so conditioned, you're going to think that, that what I'm saying is complete nonsense. And I find that very amusing. Um, and so the whole thing appears to be Lucifer's sort of manifesto of the way the world really is, what his plans are for, uh, are for the world, um, but, but maybe it's all a joke, and I'm not sure. So I, I'm not quite certain, for, for one thing, whether this is meant to be taken sort of seriously, and it's, a, it's one of these things where people, someone is sort of uh, using a work of fiction as a vehicle for real um, uh, beliefs and, and ideas that they want to put forward. There's a fair bit of flat eartherism, as we'll see. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure if this is a vehicle for flat eartherism wrapped up in a work of fiction, or whether the whole thing's meant to be sort of satire. Uh, basically, I don't know whether I should be laughing at this book or laughing with it. Well, let's go through all of its ten chapters. Mm and render a verdict. It sounds like we're about to, there should be a bit of theme music yes. playing now, and then Sandy Totsvig should be talking over the top. Josh and Matthew now are going to sit down and read the book, and we're going to find out what happens next. Over to you, Julian. Mm. Julian Barrett from The Mighty Bird. I mean, I know she normally works no, with, with Noel one, Fielding, yeah. but this time she's working with Julian Barrett, because yep. he's more of a book person, I feel. I would have thought so, yeah. And Noel Fielding. Mm. Now, that's some British game British show, and off. also yep. avant-garde comedy pop culture references. Right there, we are bringing you the pop culture references. Let's get into the book. Yes. Chapter one. Uh, chapter one, well, chapter one's really just an introduction. Yeah, it's basically one. Lucifer saying, hey, I'm Lucifer. This is my history. I was cast down from heaven because I competed against God. I am a God. I have control over everything in your life. You are mere images of the God-like entity, and you're also incredibly stupid and conditioned. But it's all right. I'm going to tell you the truth. Or am I? Mm. So it's, really, it's just sort of a page or two of introduction. Uh, most of the chapters start with a quote of some kind. This one doesn't start by quoting the opening lines of Sympathy for the Devil by the Rolling Stones, but I can kind of tell it wanted to. It's that sort of a book. Uh, but chapter two is called Planet Earth Isn't. Isn't. 
Um, and so, so right, right off the bat, it gets into your into your flat eartherism. So it's basically, it's sort of Lucifer um, la laughing at the fact that we stupid humans actually believe the world is round when there's all this obvious evidence that the world is actually flat. Um, so it goes through a lot of the stuff we've seen in the flat earth stuff before um claims that any photograph show it that appears to show sort of curvature of the horizon or even high at, um, atmosphere photographs that appear to show curvature of the earth is just due to some sort of a fisheye lens or yes, the curvature effect due to the fact that lenses are curved which if that were true we would expect to actually see at high altitudes quite obvious lensing effects as cameras pan up or down which we don't, which somewhat suggests the phenomena is actually due to the shape of the planet and not the lens itself. But, you know, once again, he's got an escape clause here. Mm. Lucifer is lying to us, at least in some part of the text, or is he? Yes, so um, there's a bit of the sort of maths Flat Earthers like to throw around about, um, uh, based on the, the supposed circumference of the round Earth. Although that gets confusing later on in the book, mm. as you no noted in the notes. Uh, at, at certain distances, you know, the, the, uh, the, the certain, because of the Earth, uh, the way the Earth curves away from from you that so that means sort of the surfaces drop slightly from certain distances and so on and so on and basically that by after a bunch of miles out um it's like something like 60 miles lower or something and but basically well, uses a bunch of this josh is doing i am waving my hands around that to explain make, this, yeah, which yeah. works really well in video but not so well on audio essentially the point is it's the the, the maths i believe is is assuming a perfect circle with a, a tangential line starting at the surface of the circle which first of all uh the the, the calculations don't take into effect the height, the, the elevation off the ground, including the height of the person and what they're standing on and so on, so the numbers don't quite um, uh, work out anyway. There are lots of interesting online calculators i found that can show that sort of stuff. And but, then um, there's a discussion about how if the Earth is curved, then surely planes would be able to display that because they're altometer? Uh, art artif artificial horizon. Yeah, well, yeah, the, the, the artificial horizon, which is basically an old-style planes, a ball suspended mm. in fluids with a line, should be moving all the time. It doesn't, therefore the Earth can't be curved because pilots aren't adjusting for curvature, which kind of ignores the fact that that meter is related to the centre of gravity, which of course is always perpendicularly down yes. from the plane. Yes, it's it's sort of it's confusing rotational and linear motion. And also, which... pilots have to keep those things level all the time anyway, because due to the way that thrust works and keeping a plane contra gravity in the air requires you to be constantly adjusting things. So actually, it is moving all the time, and pilots are adjusting things accordingly. Mm, but the point is, if the plane is following the curvature of the Earth, then it's always going to be at a ninety degree angle to the surface of the Earth anyway, yeah. so it shouldn't be anyway. Uh, there's the claim that um, the horizon doesn't exist, that's just the end of our field of vision, and that when a boat appears to disappear over the horizon, that just means you can't see it anymore, and if you had uh, binoculars or a high-powered telescope, then you would still be able to see it, which is just manifestly completely untrue. Indeed, if you have high-powered telescopes, you can watch a boat slowly disappear under the horizon um, as it as it goes away from you. And indeed, all that would also suggest that uh, with a high-powered enough telescope, we should be able to sit on the west coast of New Zealand and see Australia. We cannot. Which is prob so, actually pro probably a good thing, really. Mm, yes, no, it's probably for the best.
Um, it, it sort of it goes on. It, it gets actually quite quite hard going in that in this first sort of proper chapter, chapter number two. I was expecting, uh, I, I was sort of taken off guard a little bit. I expected the whole book to carry on like that, but it gets a little bit. It changes a bit as it goes, as we'll see. There's more talks about evolution. It does does the usual sort of creationist thing a little bit of mixing up um, evolutionism and abiogenesis and a heliocentric cosmology. It sort of munges them all together. At one point, now this one, there's a sentence in chapter two which says, the foundational belief of the Big Bang theory is as follows. Two of dots collided. If that's a typo, I don't know what it's meant to be. There are a few typos in this book. Archangels being described as ARC, not ARCH. Well, I think, I think, I think, uh, Going for typos, that was probably the, the low-hanging fruit. But I, I imagine this is just an example of there's something missing here. Yeah. Gravity doesn't exist. It's just density, just density so it's basically so, Aristotelian-style physics. Yeah, so more dense things sink to the bottom, uh, which I, I've, I've, heard, I've heard the sort of density-buoyancy arguments before, but surely density and buoyancy only exist because of gravity. And also, if density is in fact what we mistake for gravity, why hasn't Donald Trump sunk to the middle of the earth? Oh, that's, yeah, just just cool, cool down there. We'll get to the political stuff in the news section, I think. Um, and then, and as seems to happen in most chapters, it rounds out with a whole lot of uh, biblical quotes. Um, now, actually, I'm which... making note of this later on, because in one of the chapters, Lucifer, or at least the author acting as Lucifer, says much of what they're presenting is going to challenge the theology of people who are reading the text. A lot of the quotes come from the Book of Enoch, which is a Jewish scripture apocryphal book, so it's not part of the canon of Jewish scripture or the canon of pre-Christian Christian scripture, which makes up the Bible. And thus really actually can't be considered to be a challenge to anyone's theology because essentially it's kind of treated by mainstream Christians as a weird bit of fan fiction. Mm. And it would be a bit like taking a Harry Potter slash story from some, say, smoking fetish site where Hermione and Harry decide to engage in a smoking fetish somewhere in Hogsward. Go, this is a challenge to Potterites everywhere as to the, as to the, as to the nature and purity of Hermione and Harry. Jason. No, no, that's fan fiction. You don't mm. treat fan fiction seriously. The Book of Enoch is certainly an interesting historical book. It does come from the period of time where the books in the Old Testament and the Jewish scriptures were written, but it's not considered to be part of the canon of either system's theological views. Yes, so... Um, and there's just a lot of quotes from yeah, the Book of Enoch. I, I'll be honest. Basically, once, once each chapter got to the and here a bunch of quotes from the Bible section, I just tuned out and moved on to the next one. So I think you you may it sounds like you've were a little more uh, scrupulous than I was, but I kind of know my book of Enoch. Therein lies the issue. Shall we move on? Yes, to chapter, chapter three, three, where things get a little Ikean. Chapter three is called Hollow Moon, uh, which says that um, first of all starts by saying man has never landed on the moon, does acknowledge the existence of the International Space Station, and refers to it being in low orbit. Which I'm Which not sure what is orbiting, orbiting what? what. I'm not quite sure. Now, all right, so this whole thing about no one's been to the moon. Lucifer isn't denying the existence of the moon. Mm. The moon does exist as a small object in the ocean firmament of the sky. 
It's just that it's up in the ocean above us, and no human being has been able to penetrate that ocean with a mm. rocket. But they make a really big thing about how the fact that rockets curve as soon as they take off indicates they can never actually get there anyway, uh, which rockets curve when they take off because to as soon as they go the off, Earth's yeah, the uh, yeah. Earth is rotating whilst the rocket is going up and you see curve, curvature, that's another matter entirely. So, yeah, the moon is up there, but no one's got there, but the ISS exists in a low orbit, which is between the ocean of the sky and the firmament that we live on. But there is still the question, orbiting what? Because orbiting does kind of indicate going around. circling around something. So, I don't know, maybe it's... maybe. Consider, given that this does the usual flat earth thing of considering that the world is a disc with Antarctica around its outer edge, maybe it means moving in a circle around the disc like a like the needle on a record player or something. Yeah. Anyway. And there's a whole bunch of claims about the moon. So, you know, if the moon affects the tides, why aren't lakes affected by the moon? To which the answer is, they are. It's just that the body, the water mass of a lake is so small compared to the water mass of an ocean that we just don't see any of those tides. They're so minuscule compared to the mass of water that make up the oceans around the world. So in actual fact, actually the moon does affect the tides and things like the Great Lakes in North America. It's just not to a point where human beings can notice them, but they are measurable by scientists. Mm. Uh, so the moon itself apparently is a hollow, flat, translucent, crystalline, self-illuminating disk. Filled with angels. Filled with angels, yes, angelic beings who provide most of the uh, light that we see in the sky, um, although there are, although the ISS does exist, satellites do not. Uh, there's talk of how the, the supposedly great number of satellites in orbit around the Earth uh, should shouldn't be possible. That that the, the sky would be too cluttered, and it wouldn't be possible to go out into space due to the number of satellites that are supposedly out there. But I think that's um, um, as we see a lot in flat Earth things, kind of underestimating just the size of the Earth and how big space is. Yes, to quote Douglas Adams, "Space is vast. You may think it's a long way to walk down to your local." Dairy, but that's peanuts compared to space. Mm. It wasn't a direct quote; that was paraphrasing. It was. Then there's talk of supposed, you know, uh, it ends up talking about cell phone networks and how um, all telephone networks are actually connected by underground cables because the idea of using satellites is nonsense because. Uh, surely the number of satellites there are should mean we have 100% coverage everywhere, and yet there are cell phone dead zones. And uh, yeah, anyway, uh, that doesn't really seem to be much. Didn't really seem to be here nor there. It was just seemed to be a bit of a segue from doesn't talk seem of to satellites. Understand that actually, cell phones use by and large repeaters on the ground, mm. which then send some signals up to satellite for international space calls, for international stuff, calls. Yeah. But for local calls, you're basically bouncing off towers in your local vicinity. Yeah, and that's why we have dead zones because you put towers where people are. And if there aren't many people there, you don't put a tower. Mm. So chapter four goes on, is called Flat and Sunny, and goes back to a bit more, bit more flat earthiness and, and talking about the sun and its relation to the world. Um, according to this, uh, according to Lucifer, the sun is like a big torch, essentially, that moves across the earth. Um, as it moves, it zigzags between the tropics of Cancer and Capricorn, which is the cause for seasons. Um, so sometimes it's further to what we call the, the, the northern hemisphere and sometimes it's closer to the southern and so on and so forth. 
And again, he says the sun does not rise or set. He, again, he appeals to the, um, the the idea that it just moves beyond our field of, of vision, our, beyond our perspective, which again suggests that with a strong enough telescope, you can see the sun, you'd be able to see the sun at nighttime. And indeed, discounts the experience of anyone anywhere ever who has actually watched the sun set. Now, there's a lot of... Because it's not like it gets smaller and smaller and goes no. away. You actually see bits of it disappear yeah, in the air. Not, it's, not, it's not a diminishing dot going into the distance. It's a disc that slides down and then slides back up again. Mm. Now, a lot of this resembles the work of Parallax, who in the late Victorian age, his real name was Samuel Robotham, uh, wrote the book Zetetics, which is basically the flat earth Bible. And Parallax, depending on which historian you talk to, was either a hoaxer supreme or a true believer in the flat earth hypothesis. But Parallax's goal was to basically persuade the public that no matter what scientists said, he could prove through experiments the flat earth hypothesis. And often did this by challenging scientists to perform experiments with him and then just denying the results. So, i.e. getting someone at the very edge of the horizon to run away with a lamp. So in theory, you should see the lamp just disappear. The scientists report, yep, the lamp has disappeared over the horizon. Parallax will say, no, I can still see him, mm. despite the fact. No, you can't. We're looking through the same instrument. No, no, I can still see him. And as a correspondence to the Leeds time observed at the time, one thing Parallax demonstrated was that scientific dabblers unused to platform advocacy, i.e. not used to science communication, are unable to cope with a man, a charlatan if you will, but clever and thoroughly up in his theory, thoroughly alive, to the weakness of his opponents. Mm. And I have to say, I've been, been looking into Flat Earth stuff recently just because I've read claims, including ones made in this book, and it's you sort of hear the claim, and it's like, well, no, that's not true. And then I sort of asked myself, but if a person were to say to me, how do you know it's not true? I'd go, B because it's not. Because science. Because science says it's not, but I wouldn't be able to tell myself why, which I think is what a lot of people, the situation a lot of people are in, which is why views like this can end up gathering... Uh, uh, making ground because um, people sort of uh, the, the the lay person or indeed anyone who's not exactly a specialist in this particular particular area may not know enough to contradict them, even though we Especially certainly believe them to be false. when they engage in what's called the gish gallop. Ah, yes, another one we've talked about before, which is. Uh, Gish was a, a well-known creationist, wasn't he? Yes, yes. He, was. <clears throat> um, he pioneered the technique in, when debating evolutionists of um, just machine gun rattling off a whole bunch of claims against evolution, all of which were false, but none of which could be refuted in time. So, you know, he, he, he in his allotted five minutes or ten minutes or however he got in the debate, he could make, you know, maybe 20 claims and to disprove even one of them would take, you know, maybe five minutes. So there was no possible way his his um, opponent could disprove everything he had said other than to stand there and go, no, it isn't, no, it isn't, no, it doesn't, no, no, wrong, no, wrong, which, of course, isn't particularly convincing. Yes, well, so if you do spend some time refusing some of the claims, then the Gish Gallup then allows you to go, well, my, my, my respected colleague here, Josh Addison, has certainly shown he's not a unicorn, but he hasn't disproven to us that he's not a rhinoceros. So, therefore... That he can't dispute the fact he's a rhinoceros, I think we should take it seriously that he is. Mm. So the idea being that if you spend time refusing 
some of the claims, then the person can declare victory on the claims you didn't spend any time on. Yes. Anyway, returning to the book, uh, it makes mention in this chapter of giant inter interdimensional gates in Antarctica, remembering that in the Flat Earth Theory, Antarctica runs the entire circumference of the Flat Earth, um, and the sun travels through these gates, so I assume he's going for a sort of Pac-Man theory, at least as it relates to the sun. So the sun, the sun, bad. the sun doesn't circle around the oh, world or anything, it gets to one end, travels through this interdimensional gate and immediately teleports back to the other side. But yes, good bit of Bloodhound Gang. I didn't want to stop because I was in the middle of my thing, but yes, I approve. And then it goes into a lot of symbolism, saying how the symbolism we see in the world every day is it's the old, old hiding in plain sight stuff. So, so for instance, the, the, the yin-yang symbol supposedly shows the routes that the sun and moon take as they move across the earth, um, makes mention of the fact that various organizations such as uh, the UN um, show a flat earth on their flags, by which they mean a, a projection of, the, well, I can't remember the name of the exact projection, but the one that, that sort of looks like a flat earth thing. Um, apparently the UN one is divided divided into 35 sections, which is significant to Freemasonry. I don't know what the Every number, number is significant yeah, to Freemasonry, well, as long as you look at the number hard enough. And there's more and more and more Bible stuff, but how are we doing for time? We should probably speed things up a little bit. Chapter 5 is called The Glue of You, where things go more into sort of alternative science, in particular DNA. Um, black goo, black programmable goo. matter. Yep. It will give us a triple helix DNA and make us immortal mutations in his... Image. That's yeah. Lucifer. Yes. So DNA, uh, there's the claim that 95% uh, of DNA is invisible, um, hyperdimensional shifting stuff. I don't know. So no, no, the, D the DNA that we're aware of is only 5% of our true DNA. Also claims that um, Adam and Eve, the first humans, had triple helix DNA, and yet we flawed images only have the double helix DNA. Makes makes uh, mention of the fact that therefore we have two thirds of the amount of DNA we should have. Two thirds is 66.6666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666
Um, apparently, once once Lucifer has enacted this plan that he's been talking about the whole time and turned us all into triple helix DNA to mortal mutations, uh, with the advent of his golden age, the flat earth will terraform into gold. So that'll be nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, uh, that's going to be really, really useful. I mean, we're living on a gold plate mm. in the middle of the universe. Oh, that sounds nice. It talks about two suns. There's an invisible black sun comprised of pure philosophical gold held within a medium of time and space. The black sun is the template of his open opus magnum. Not magnum opus. Opus magnum. <laughs> well, a, a opus ma magnum is, uh, is, is, is one of those chocolates on a stick. Mm. Ice That's... cream core. Mm. Anyway, I'm, I'm mocking typos again. I shouldn't do that. Chapter 9, numerology. A lot of numerology in Chapter 9. Yeah, there's a lot of numbers in Chapter 9. Lots of claims about the Great Pyramid of Giza, which kind of was the bon mot for spiritualists back at the end of the Victorian age, where everyone was going around measuring the pyramid and trying to find other measures within those measures mm. and the like. There's actually a fairly half-decent description of what the pyramids looked like back in the day. You know, alabaster white with a, shine, a shining tip, but apparently it's a third-dimensional replica of his fifth-dimensional Mount, Mount Zion. Mm. I'm not quite sure what the other two dimensions do. Norm, normally the fourth dimension is time. The fifth dimension uh, is pretentiousness. Could be. Uh, it was made by angels, of course. The Great Pyramid of Giza, constructed by the Nephilim and the Dark Angels around 3500 BC. Uh, it is the centre of the flat Earth, apparently. Uh, talk of black cubes. Tell me oh, yeah. So cubes. I, uh, I made a note of this when I was reading the book that I should look this up. So there's a claim here that there are black cubes scattered across the globe in glory of Satan's work in Manhattan, Santa uh, Santa Ana. Australia and Denmark. I feel like Australia is going to turn out to be a typo, but it's a really interesting typo. Now, there is a black cube in Manhattan. It's the Alamo sculpture installed in 1967, and it's a somewhat irregular black cube in Manhattan in New York. There is a black cube in Santa Ana. It's the Discovery Museum in Orange County. It's a museum for kids doing science. Also re a relatively recent build. There's a black cube in Denmark. It's called the Dice. It's in Svinborg. Actually, there's not much information about it available online. It's commonly known as a meeting point in Svinborg for locals to meet because it's a giant black cube on a corner. Mm. So if you want to meet with a friend, why not meet at the black cube? Now, the one in Australia is interesting. So if you search for black cube Australia... You don't really find any information whatsoever, apart from the fact that for the Venice Biennial, or whatever that's about right, yeah. uh, Australia was going to have a, a kind of black rectangle as a display space, but that would be in Italy, not in Australia. There are a bunch of images online of four black cubes around the place, mentioning Manhattan, Santa Ana, Australia, and Denmark, except the one that's Australia is in fact located in Hamburg. It's an image of a black cube outside of a museum in Hamburg. And it's possible here, someone is making the mistake of thinking Hamburg is in Austria, but when they created their memeable GIF they could distribute across the internet, they called Austria Australia. 
because that's really the only possible. way mm. I can possibly make an image which is quite obviously of the black cube outside of a museum in Han Hamburg, something people confuse for being in Australia. What's the point of these black cubes anyway? Well, I'm assuming they form some kind of antichrist cross, which you can then use for things, but actually finding out that one of them is in Australia kind of makes that map not work at all. Mm. But anyway, anyway. Uh, there are black cubes. One of them isn't in Australia. Righto. So we move on to the final chapter, chapter 10, Divine Dualities Lie. Uh, and this is where, where our, our good buddy by this time, Lucifer, um, lays out his, his sort of full manifesto, really. He, he, he spills his master plan in the style of a Bond villain, only unlike a Bond villain, he, he's extra cunning because he knows that he can say all this out loud and no one's going to believe him anyway. Uh, so he says the, the, the lie of duality is the idea that there is balance between good and evil or between God and Satan and Lucifer says the, the, there, is, there is no inherent balance and he's going to tip everything into chaos because he's Lucifer and that's what he likes to do. Um, there's a bit more detail on his triple DNA chips made out of black goo programmable matter which are all going to turn us into these, these mutations in his image and so on and so forth. And then it sort of goes, it sort of sets out his whole his whole sort of pr the point of, of all of this um and of spreading this, these lies of a heliocentric universe uh, heliocentric solar system and and the lie of a round earth and all that is to sort of condition us so that we will then accept his his um his coming as it were so he says that um Belief in a spinning ball travelling through a black void of endless space creates a nihilistic, cynical society devoid of love, obsessed with the present and indifferent to eternity. The heliocentric theory kills purpose while reinforcing a sense of hopelessness. So that's why Lucifer has propagated this lie to make us all feel so hopeless that we'll jump at his, um, his, his triple DNA black goo chips. And then... And then... Belief... In a flat earth compels an atheist to acknowledge intelligent design created by an omnipotent being who controls the unfathomable. Which seems to be saying that um, an atheist, atheists have no problem with a round earth because it actually makes sense. And therefore the flat earth shows that, that, that creationism must be true because it's otherwise impossible. Which... Kind kind of sounds isn't isn't a good look for the flat Earth hypothesis. Sort of no, sort of or admitting is it? Well, exactly. Um, and so that's that's kind of where it goes. It's like yeah, Lucifer's. It, kind of, it ends abruptly. Mm. He's like, well, here we go. I've spent the last few hundred years lying to you. Um, this is the truth. I, I can say that happily because you, I've done such a good job of indoctrinating you that you're all going to think this is nonsense. Um, I, I think it's nonsense. So I guess I guess that proves him right. Indeed. Mm. So what did you think of Morningstar's tale, Joshua? Would you recommend it to a friend? Uh, possibly not. Would you recommend it to Isaac? Yes, I would it definitely recommend it to Isaac. Yep. Um, Isaac is a friend of the podcast and the kind of person who, when I go to a David Icke talk, Isaac is always there beside me. Mm. Yes, I mean... Uh, like I said right at the start, I think I'm really not quite sure what to make of it. I mean, it, it makes um, a bunch of like if, if if we're to ignore the sort of the biblical, the more occulty stuff, and actually just focus on the uh, the, the more concrete claims that that, that appear to um, argue for a flat Earth hypothesis, uh, and most of them are just plain wrong. Most of them uh, are disprovable by fairly fairly easy acts of observation. You don't even need to do wacky experiments or anything. 
so yeah, I don't know whether it takes itself seriously and therefore I just think it's a load of old bollocks or whether it's poking a bit of fun, in which case good on it. That's, that's kind of where I am really. My opinion on this is that at least when I was reading the first chapter, the Welcome to Lucifer chapter, reads like supernatural fanfic. And I mean supernatural as in the TV show uh, st starring Jensen Eccles and Eccles, not it, not Eccles, and then the other actor who can't act. That's another mm. matter entirely. Uh, my critical views on supernatural can be found elsewhere online. In that there's a character in Supernatural who is Lucifer, played by Mark Pellegrino, and their first chapter almost reads as if the author is channeling Mark Pellegrino's way of talking about Lucifer, because Lucifer in Supernatural is someone who really doesn't think they're doing anything wrong. Yeah, they've done a few things to, to mislead humanity, but essentially under their guidance, things are going to be fine. And it just reads a lot like supernatural fan fiction. Well, there you go. Is it a good thing or a bad thing? It's neither. It's a thing. It's a just, it's just yep. a thing. In fact, I think that should be the, the, the ultimate review of this book. It's a thing. It is. It is a work of words mm -hmm. spanning 40 or so pages written by a person. Mm-hmm available to buy online, although our recommendation is you don't need to. Yep. But we have another book review coming up. Yes, but not this week. Would you like me to tell you about the book review? I would. I don't know. What I, I don't actually know this. Is, what is this book that this we're going to be reviewing? This is new and exciting information, not just for you, the listener, but also for Josh, the co-host. Co yeah, that's That'll probably do. the right word. Uh, so this is actually a, a book by Anthony Revlich. It's a suppressed text. Uh, let me read you the description of the book. There is no escape for fake liberals from my truth because it is based on fact, not opinion, and is verifiable. And I believe in universal human rights truth, i.e. ethical human rights, so they cannot call me alt-right, a fascist, or a white supremacist. It, this book describes how the fake liberals following a UN agenda, neoliberalism and globalization, aim to destroy global freedom and Western civilization. In the NZ section, it shows how following the UN agenda, potential has been crushed, especially the best and brightest, and how many ended up in the mental health and criminal justice systems. In my personal view, God did defend NZ, as in the national anthem. I believe in universal human rights, so the fake liberals cannot call me alt-right, fascist, or a white supremacist. There is no escape from my truth, because it is based on fact, not opinion, and is verifiable. And I appear to have repeated myself twice in the description of this book. Yes. Well, uh, the book is called Ethical Human Rights, Freedom's Great Hope, American Academic Press 2017. Mm. Is it actually being suppressed in any way? Not that I'm aware of. I think it's more that the author, Anthony Revlich, has simply not had much success with the book being talked about. But we're going to talk about it. Yes, we are. Maybe not the entire book. It's a, unlike Morningstar's Tale, which is a, a short 40 page novella, novella. Uh, this is more of an actual book. 
But at the same time, there is a chapter on the fun and excitement of New Zealand. Yeah. Well, there we go. It's, I, I look forward to reading small sections of this book. Well, you will. Yeah. You will. So that's... um. That, 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 that draws the book reviewing portion of this episode to a close. Um, I guess we should just get on with the news. Indeed. Hmm. Let's do that. Breaking, breaking conspiracy theories in the news. It's news time, so that means checking in on Reddit for the latest headlines. Just a reminder, voting changed nothing. Corporate lobbyists and elite bankers still run the country. Why does the Pope speak through the mouth of the serpent in his audience hall? Probably, um, probably should have covered that last week. Uh, is Michael Avenatti backed by Trump and or the Republicans? But now politics. We'll get to the US in just a minute, but first an update on that Jamie Lee Ross scandal. Earlier this week, another audio recording involving Ross and National Party leader Simon Bridges was leaked, which, well, was a little disturbing. Um, as a catch-up for listeners who didn't listen to our previous episodes or who simply don't care to remember the politics of Aotearoa New Zealand, part and parcel of the Ross scandal was the claim that the leader and co-leader of the National Party had encouraged Ross to take mental health leave. This was after claims he'd predated on at least foreman had been received by the leadership team. This new audio recording affirms that account, but adds in an undeniably creepy and conspiratorial factor. According to the recording, Bridges and his co-leader, Paula Bennett, both promised Ross that A, if Ross took medical leave from Parliament, then they would never publicly discuss the sexual assault allegations, and B, if Ross didn't cause waves, he would likely be promoted. The cover-up here is seedy enough. When the Ross scandal first surfaced, Bridges and Bennett claimed the sexual assault claims were credible, but here they are, saying they'll keep them quiet um, in order to protect Ross. Ross being a former chief whip for the party, which is political parlance for he knows where the bodies are buried and uses that information to keep people in line. Having a chief whip with such claims against him... Credible claims, remember, um, at, at least according to Bridges and Bennett, is both not a good look, but also the kind of thing which makes you think politicians are as self-serving as many of the public think they are. But it's the fact that if Ross kept his nose down that he would likely be promoted that rankles the most. It's one thing to keep a predator in their, their activity secret, it's another to promote them. That is, maybe we can understand covering up such allegations, but covering up and rewarding the perpetrator, not a good look. Which brings us to the other issue. What we have here is a conspiracy pure and simple, but the conspiracy theory is the question of who is orchestrating these leaks, which looks to be targeted specifically at Simon Bridges. The social media con commentariat is fairly convinced it's one Judith Collins, a national MP who was passed over as a potential leader for the National Party and represents the hard right of that party. She and a few select allies outside of the parliament, blogger Cameron Slater and self-proclaimed political mastermind Simon Lusk, have long been thought to be behind quite a bit of dirty politicking, um, and Collins is apparently unimpressed by Bridges' performance as a leader so far. Something the public seem to agree with her on, if polling is any measure. And thus people are asking, 
qui bono. Although asking where the front man of U2 is in all of this seems a bit irrelevant. Ah, U2 jokes. We're really targeting that core demographic of 45-year-olds who don't own iOS devices. Still, the question of who benefits here is interesting, because these leaks are certainly damaging both to Ross and Bridges, but one assumes Ross is just a sacrificial lamb. But enough conspiracy theories about local politics. Now, the US. Election results are in and Democrats have taken the House while Republicans have kept the Senate. So expect congressional investigations to Trump and Trump judicial appointments to just keep on coming. The big question is, what's going to happen next? Given there have been rumours for weeks now that Trump will purge his cabinet in the wake of whatever the election results happen to be. That means Attorney General Jeff Sessions is already out, fired earlier today in New Zealand time. Um, this allows for the appointment of a new AG who wouldn't recuse themselves from the Mueller collusion investigation. That's the investigation Robert Mueller is running into potential collusion, not the investigation in Robert Mueller's collusion itself. Although, you see, as we discussed briefly last week, some GOP operatives tried to flip the script and make Mueller or Mueller? What Mueller. Mueller. Mueller, okay. The target of an investigation, namely one around sexual harassment. Now, let us be clear. Neither of us are claiming that Robert Mueller has an unimpeachable character. He may or may not have been guilty of all sorts of impropriety in the past. But this story is definitely one of someone trying to set Mueller up. Our story concerns an organisation known as Surefire Intelligence which is possibly the worst name ever for a political organisation because it sounds much better as a sarcastic title than it does as an actual name. Members of the media had been contacted over the past few weeks by a woman who said she had been offered money to say she was sexually assaulted by Mueller. After some investigation, it was determined the assault allegation was likely a hoax. This information was then passed on to the special counsel's office. Mueller's office then reported the claims to the FBI. It was quickly discovered that Jack Berkman was behind the scheme. He has previous form, having peddled Seth Rich conspiracy theories, which we've covered before. Berkman claimed that whilst he was not behind the scheme, he did have bombshell news about Mueller's drunkenness and sexual activity, which he would release to the public. When the day came, Berkman held a press conference in the motel room, his fly open, where he revealed an unnamed source had made claims about Mueller, but would not present any details or affidavits to verify his claim. This isn't, as we said, Berkman's first attempt at creating a scandal. He previously claimed to have evidence of the Clintons' involvement in the death of Seth Rich, which also ended up in a motel room press conference in which no evidence was actually forthcoming. Now, days before these allegations made the news, QAnon Twitter accounts were echoing the work of one Jacob Wall, who claimed to have heard from unnamed media sources that a scandalous story about Mueller was about to break. But Wall's source was not the media, but the aforementioned Surefire Intelligence, an organisation he is linked to by virtue of being behind the Surefire Intelligence DNS registration, and also because the phone number for Surefire Intelligence goes straight to his mother's answer phone. True story. Surefire Intelligence has turned out to be a goldmine of information, almost all of it false. Its 12-member team is made up of stock photographs, one of which is that of Christoph Waltz, Academy and BAFTA award-winning actor. Surefire appears to just be a front, designed to make it look as if there was a team of people investigating claims about Robert Mueller, rather than just perhaps a couple of people making up claims, or perhaps even worse, trying to pay people to make those claims for them. 
It's one thing to make false accusations against someone, it's another to try and get people to make those claims for you with the promise of financial remedy. Conservatives seem to be of the mind that women often make claims of sexual impropriety against men for financial gain, which means you would think twice about paying women to make such claims if you were a conservative, surely. After all, you don't want to support that gravy train. Yet when political operatives do try to entice people to make such claims with the promise of a little money, the story almost always gets out, which somewhat suggests that women aren't making these claims on purely financial motives. And we're leaving to one side the continued opprobrium these women suffer when they make such claims. Hmm. The conspiracy here is obvious. Berkman and Wall tried to generate a sexual assault allegation for money, and their plot was found out. Last week we thought the story would get bigger, if not necessarily better, but it turns out it's kind of just died. We'd like to say, just like the credibility of Berkman and Wall, but given Berkman's past form, I'm sure he'll be back with more scandal after the break. Finally, some more words about Nazis. Yes, last week we really poured on the whole Nazis and Nazi-like sympathies are a problem, taking quite a hard look at the US. But never fear, because we have Nazis down under too. Yes, across the ditch in the land of exploding gum trees, the Australian Nationals Party is having a bit of an issue with, well, Nazi infiltrators. At least 15 members of the Young Nationals have resigned, accusing the media and the government of engaging in a witch hunt when it was discovered that members of the New South Wales QA Mitchell and Webb joke, mm, Young Nationals had been attending a secret men's only fight club, which had been set up by some of the country's most prominent alt-right nationalists. Members of this group were also members of the New Guard Facebook group, which shared alt-right jokes and generally supported fascism. When the members of this group were outed, their response was to deny being Nazis, while also claiming that the white culture in Australia was under attack by immigration and a succession of socialist governments. It looks as if alt-right operatives in Australia have been engaging in bench stacking, the process of swamping regional come rural seat selection committees and meetings in order to advance candidates of their liking. Members of the Nationals in rural areas have reported meetings being swamped with townies who have pushed for and elected candidates locals have never heard of or would not have won otherwise. So, Nazism, it's not just for America. Talking about stuff which is not just for America, this week's bonus episode, available to patrons for a mere few dollars a month, features us trying to say the name of a suspected alien solar sail which passed by the sun recently, we also wonder why Steve Bannon is giving a keynote at a computing conference, and we ponder the story of an Iranian plot to kill a Norwegian in Denmark. Positively Shakespearean. But for now, we bid you farewell and good night. We'll see you in our dreams. And you'll see us in your nightmares. You've been listening to the podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. It is written, researched, and performed by Josh Addison, a.k.a. Monkey Fluids, and MRX Dentith, a.k.a. Conspiracism on Twitter. This podcast is available where all good podcasts can be found, as well as iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. It can also be watched on YouTube. Just search for the podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, or, if you happen to be technophobic, consult the auguries. You can support the podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy via our Patreon page, as listed in the podcast description, or just by searching for us on Patreon. You can also support us via the Podbean patronage system, if that is more your style. You do you. If you want to get in contact with us, 
why not email us at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. And remember, Soylent Green is Meeple's.